grab your Bible, turn with me to Luke 16, if you will. Again, let me say welcome this morning to Red Lane Baptist Church. If you are one of our guests, we'd love for you to take an opportunity at some point during the service and scan that QR code that is on the bulletin that you should have received when you came in the door. Give us an opportunity to pray for you and to uh, learn a little bit more about you, and hopefully you learn a little bit more about us as a church. But it's this Thanksgiving week, and aren't we glad for that? That's kind of weak. I mean, you get a couple days off work, you get to watch football, and more than anything, you get together with friends and family and eat an incredible meal and think about how the Lord has been good to you this year. Isn't that something to get excited about? That's a little better. It's still kind of weak and poor, but uh, you got a few days to kind of lean into that some before you get to, to, uh, to Thursday. Uh, last Sunday night, if you were one of those 220-ish people that gathered over at Historic Whitewood, you enjoyed a fabulous evening. Amen. And it was so good for us to get together as a church and to just uh, be together in one setting. You know, usually the last several years we've done that dinner in two settings below us in our fellowship hall. But it's so nice to be able to sit in one room or one tent and enjoy good food, good fellowship together. And so thank you for being there. Those of you who came, those of you who couldn't, you missed out. Hopefully you'll be there next year. But also uh, thank you to uh, Chad and Sarah Taylor for hosting us. What a beautiful venue that is. And uh, yes, thank you for a round of applause there. Also, uh, big thanks to everyone who donated a turkey or a pie and the kitchen team, uh, Andrew Beagle, Tommy Mann, and, and those folks for uh, putting all of that together so that we could come and enjoy an evening together. But grab your Bibles and uh, let's this morning talk about God and his word from the second half of Luke chapter 16. You know, this morning we've been uh, talking about in our music, singing about the goodness of God and the greatness of God and the grace of God. You know, as we sing those songs and we think about those uh, characteristics of the Lord and how he's acted on our behalf and toward us, the question that ought to come to our minds as we sing about these attributes and sing about these actions is, how do we know he's acted in this way toward us? How do we know God's been gracious? How do we know God has been good? How do we know that he's called us to himself and, and, and his favor rests upon us? How do we know those things? Well, the way we know those things is because, because God has spoken. God has spoken and he's given us this word in what we call the Bible. These 66 books making up this canon of scripture that we know of as the Holy Bible. And when you think about the word of God, here's a statement I, I want to just kind of lay upon you this morning as we get started. The word of God can change not only a life, but an entire lifestyle. So in other words, you know, as Jack was being baptized earlier, and what baptism is is this picture of, of the gospel and what the gospel does in the life of a sinner, bringing them from death to life. As that was demonstrated before you in baptism, when you think about the gospel, it's not just redeeming a person and giving them a new address in eternity was hell now it's heaven it's not just that it's that and more it's that he's been saved that we've been saved brought into relationship with jesus christ and now we get to walk in this newness of life now our lifestyle gets to change and so the word of god teaches us about how we can be saved and now walk in this salvation that our lifestyle would be reflective of the Lord Jesus Christ and the life he lived and what the Spirit would have us live today. And so Keith Miller shares an incredible story of this glorious transformation in his book, 
called the edge of eternity or edge of adventure. He says that in 1787, the British ship named Bounty, along with Captain Beale, Bly, I should say, Captain Bly uh, and his crew, his officers, set sail from England for the South Seas. The plan was for this crew on board the Bounty to create a more habitable environment among the islands by transplanting fruit-bearing, fruit-bearing, uh, fruit-bearing and food-bearing trees along with other things on the islands. And so they took 10 months to sail from England down to the South Sea Islands. And then when they arrived, they took six months for the officers and the crew to carry out the objective, the duties placed upon them by the British government. When the special assignment had come to completion, the order was given by the captain that they needed to embark again but the sailors refused. In fact, they even rebelled against Captain Bly. They'd formed strong attachments with the native girls there, and that combined with the climate and the ease of island life led them to like what was going on in the islands. The result was mutiny on the bounty. The sailors placed Captain Bly and a few loyal men adrift in an open boat. The captain, however, miraculously survived, was able to be rescued, made his way back to London to tell his story. And so an expedition was launched to bring justice to those who mutinize Captain Bly and those other loyal men. Bring them under justice in the British law. Nine of the men were uh, not found. Fourteen were captured. Nine of them were not captured. In fact, they had migrated to a distant island before the, uh, the expedition caught up with them. And there on this distant island, they formed a colony. Perhaps there's never been a more degraded and a more debauched social life than that of this colony formed by these nine sailors who had come along these natives. Men had learned to distill whiskey from a native plant, and you combine the distilling of whiskey along with all of their other bad habits, and it led to absolute ruin on this island in this new colony that they had set. Disease and murder took the lives of all the native men, and every one of those sailors but one died. The man who survived was named Alexander Smith. He found himself the only man on an island full of women and half-breed children. Alexander Smith, one day, was rummaging through the belongings of one of his fellow sailors that had died, and he found a Bible. Smith had never knew this book. He had never read the Bible, so he took it, and I guess nothing else to do on the island. He began to read it, began to believe it, and then he began to appropriate it. Smith so believed the Bible and so wanted to appropriate it into his life that he began to share it, began to read it and teach it to the women and the children on the island as well. Twenty years later, when a ship finally arrived on the island, the first hint of any other person outside of the island itself, when they arrived, those people found a miniature utopia right there in that what was once a debased and degraded colony. The people were living in decency, it was said. They were living in prosperity. They had harmony and peace. There, there was nothing of crime. There was nothing of disease. There was no hint of immorality or insanity or even illiteracy. The lone answer for the reason of this miniature slice of heaven on earth goes all the way back to what Alexander Smith found in the, uh, the, the refuge, the belongings of a dead sailor, and that was the Bible. 
By reading, by believing, by appropriating the word of God, the people on this island were moved from death to life. You see, the Bible has the power to change a person's life. Unfortunately, in the society that we live in, it seems to look more and more like the early days of island life for Alexander Smith than the latter days of Alexander Smith. The society we live in today seems to be debased and depraved. It's fixated on the passions of the flesh with little to no care for the things of God. Like Smith and his fellow sailors, the Bible has a presence, right? The Bible has a presence in our society today. You can find it in any and every hotel room. You can find its teachings on the radio. You can find its teachings on the television. You can find it on the internet. There's churches everywhere. We have the presence of God's word. But today, by and large, it is rarely opened and heated even less. You see, when someone dares to open and to share the Bible's teaching, that person in today's culture in this part of the world is shouted down, threatened to be canceled. And so should we be surprised then when we look around our culture and our society and see such exponential jumps in crime and disease and immorality and mental health and senselessness? Should it surprise us to see those things when we who were once a Bible culture no longer even open our Bibles? That's why this text that we're looking at this morning is much needed. Thankfully, Ecclesiastes tells us that there's nothing new under the sun. So what does that mean for us? It means that for most situations in life, we can look back at a past era and we can learn from that era. And what we see here in Luke chapter 16 is a era, a season, a situation in which Jesus finds himself in a culture that has the word of God, but is no longer holding to the word of God. See, like Alexander Smith, the Pharisees and the religious leaders read the word of God. They said they believed the word of God. They just refused to appropriate it into their lives. And yet, by not obeying and appropriating it, they showed that they really did not believe it. Jesus had made it his mission to bring the word of God to the people, and the people who were supposed to know the word of God the most failed to recognize him and refused to listen to him. And so in these verses this morning, I want us to, to look at and see what God has to say about his word, what it means for us. And so look with me, Luke chapter 16. Let's begin reading in verse 14. Luke says, The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things. That is the teaching that we looked at last Sunday, the teaching on God and money. And they ridiculed him. And Jesus said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who, commits, or everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, 
Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him, Lazarus, to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Luke clues us in on the fact that Jesus had been speaking to his disciples. The passage we looked at last week and even verses before that in chapter 15. But while he's teaching, while he's instructing, while he's helping his disciples to learn and to grow and understand the kingdom more and better, as always, the Pharisees are listening. The Pharisees heard what Jesus had said, and Luke tells us that they ridiculed him because of it. That term in the Greek means, it carries the idea of turning up one's noses, like, huh, whatever. That's ridiculous. That, that's the sentiment, and even that much more that they gave toward Jesus. You see, these men love money, and so they obviously rejected the message Jesus had just shared with his disciples, that you cannot serve both God and money. God's will was... Nowhere on their radar. And so as such, these Pharisees made fun of the God who had come to redeem them. But you know, God's word was present in the lives of these leaders. They memorized the Torah. I mean, any Pharisee would have been able to quote most of the Torah, large portions of the Torah. They would have been able to teach it and regurgitate it. They would have been able to, to bring uh, instruction there. To others, they knew the Torah. They even went so far as to wear the word of God on their body. It would have hang, hung from their foreheads. It would have been plastered around their, their house. They knew and, he, and held up the word of God. It was a big deal to them. But as we read this text, we see that it was nothing more than an outward expression. They never allowed the word of God to take root in their lives. They never allowed it to, to get deep into the soil of their hearts and deep in the soil of their souls and to begin to bring life there. And as such, it never was able to transform them from the inside out. Today, as we consider Jesus' teaching from this encounter, I want you to see that God's word is what a person needs more than anything else. This morning, you may come in here with all kinds of needs. I mean... This is the week of Thanksgiving, and you are supposed to, we are supposed to as a society, to kind of take pause and step back and think about what the Lord's done for you. And many times our thoughts go to the good things. I mean, the Lord has made my bank account double. The Lord this year has caused uh, good things to happen to me, and you just begin to list those things. But we don't always step back and think about the Lord has been good whether or, whether or not life has been easy for us. He's always good. And so you come in here this morning, you're wrestling with this idea, you wrestle with this thing of, of, man, I really need something. As I think about this past year, 
I need the Lord to do something monumental in my life because it's really, really been hard. It's been hard this year. You say, I need this, this, and this, and this, and this. And you think about all those needs, and you would maybe point to some of those and say, this is my greatest need, but it's not. You see, the greatest need in a person's life is to hear and to believe the Word of God because it's the Word of God that reveals the person of God to us. And us knowing, hearing, believing the Word of God literally is a matter of life and death. It makes the difference between the two. And so I want you to see four things this morning about God and his word. The first thing I want you to see is that God knows your heart. God knows your heart. These Pharisees were really good at convincing people that they were holy men who walked with God. You know, I think the Pharisees were better than you and I at convincing people of that. I've joked with you many times before that on Sunday mornings we will drive to church if you've got children or maybe sometimes even between spouses you drive to church and you're in a fight the whole way here it's probably spiritual warfare or something else going on but you get you drive to church or or you're hustling around i mean this morning i got a call and said the dog's out she's not coming back do you think that put me in the greatest mood at 8 45 to get that call no but i did it and I got the dog home, and I told my little girl on the way to church, uh, I said, I'm, I'm the superhero. I came, and I saved the day. The dog didn't die. She didn't fall in a hole. The, the eagle didn't come down and snatch her up. I don't, you know, I saved the day. But I could have really, and I probably wasn't in the best mindset when I first left, but I didn't peel out in the parking lot. I, I know that. But I thought about it. I'll just be honest. I thought about it because i got a lot of things to do on Sunday morning. I've got a lot of routines to do on Sunday morning. I didn't need that. But that's what we do on Sundays, right? We, we get distracted, and that's probably indicative of the rest part of our life. But what happens is we come to church, and all of a sudden, that snaps. And we walk out, and we have a smile on our face, and we look good, and we say nice things to people, and we're friendly, and we're kind, and we're gentle. But we were not that three minutes ago on red lane coming up the hill, right? So we have a tendency to be really convincing. I think the Pharisees were masters at convincing people that they were holy men who walked with God. They were good at convincing people that they lived to obey God's word. And in fact, they were so successful at this that they had led the people of Israel into following their traditions, coming under the yoke of their traditions. They emphasized outward piety and religiosity. In fact, they were so good at all of this, they convinced themselves that they were right with God. They convinced themselves that their religiosity and their piety and their outward expressions were good and enough. And yet Jesus was never convinced. Why? How was he never convinced? It's because he knows the heart. You could come here on a Sunday morning and put a smile on your face and, 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 uh, and you can cause us to believe your facade and your sham. You can convince us, but God knows your heart. God knows that. And hopefully and thankfully and prayerfully, he speaks to you in your hypocrisy. So to these Pharisees, Jesus saw them like we would see young children playing hide-and-go-seek. You ever played hide-and-go-seek with little kids, right? Little kids, you, you're playing hide-and-go-seek in the house. You know, you're talking like four, five, six-year-old kids, maybe seven-year-olds. And, and you, you know, you're the one counting, and you start counting, and they run. And they run throughout the house, but they go to the most obvious places 
imaginable, right? Little Johnny runs into the, the den, and, and so he gets behind the drapes, and he's standing there like this. You can see a silhouette from the, from the sunshine shining through the, the drapes there. You can also see his sneakers sticking out from behind or from underneath the drapes. And so you walk in the room, and you're like, where's little Johnny? And he's right there. Little Susie, she runs when you start to count, and, and she runs to a, a really obvious place as well. She hides behind the bedroom door, right? So you're walking through the house. Where are you at? Where are you at? You walk into the bedroom door, and you just got a feeling that there's two places you hide in the bedroom, under the bed or behind the door. So you walk into the bedroom, like, where's little Susie at? And you hear her snickering from behind the door. That's what Jesus feels like, more than likely, as he's talking with these Pharisees who think they have pulled one over on the Lord Jesus because they have obviously pulled one over on the people. But the Lord never played along with their games. Why, why would the Lord not play along with their games? Why would he not act like we do with children in hide-and-go-seek? Why would he not be like, it's okay that you're hiding in the most obvious spot. It's because life's not a game. And eternity is too important to play games with. And so Jesus constantly pointed out their hypocrisy. Jesus constantly pointed out their sinfulness and their blatant disregard for his word. Serious business when it comes to God's word because eternity is hanging in the balance. So in response to the ridicule these Pharisees gave toward Jesus, he said in verse 15, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. God knows where you're at. God knows what you're thinking. God knows who you really are. You might deceive yourselves, but you do not deceive the God who created you. You do not see, deceive the God who sees it all. In fact, the Bible tells us that God sees everything. You go back to the story of Hagar in Genesis 16 when she runs from Abraham and Sarai. It is God who comes to her and she recognizes that God is the one who sees you wherever you are because he sees everything about your life. The writer of Hebrews magnifies this in, in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13. He says, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. This morning, you might have come dressed up in your finest clothes, putting on the great show that everything is wonderful in my life, but the Lord sees you naked and exposed. He sees everything. He sees the covering that you're putting over the shame and the guilt in your life. He sees you as you are. You see, God knows your heart. And he knew the heart of these Pharisees who were ridiculing him. Ridiculing him. And so today, the Lord knows your heart. He sees that facade you're putting up. He knows who and what it is you worship. We tend to worship the possessions and the material things in our life. There may be some sort of spiritual veneer that you've plastered over the surface of your life showing that everything's okay. But mark my word, Jesus sees through all of it, all the way to your heart. He knows the real you. This brings us to a second thing I want you to see. God's word speaks to the deepest need of your heart. Not only does God see your hearts, but thankfully he speaks to them. Jesus went on to say in verse 16, the law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom is preached and everyone, is forces, everyone forces his way into it. You know, that last phrase can be translated, everyone is forcefully urged into it. I like that translation a little bit better. I think it fits the, the category or the, the concept that's going on here and it fits the gospel a little better. 
God has given us his word. He's given it to mankind so that every person can know, every person can understand both the condemnation of sin and the redemption that's found exclusively in Jesus Christ. So the law and the prophets were given as a guardian until Christ came. Paul lays that out in Galatians chapter 3. John the Baptist He's, Jesus says here is that last of the Old Testament prophets, and he came announcing the arrival of the kingdom. His announcement in no way annuls the law. It doesn't take away the law. It just takes it to the next level. It points to the fulfillment of the law. And that's what Jesus talked about in Matthew 5. He says, I have come to fulfill the law. So today we have an Old Testament because it tells us what we need to understand in the New Testament. And we have a New Testament because it's built on the foundation of the Old Testament. So we have a word from God that speaks into our lives. These Pharisees prided themselves in their faithful obedience to the law of Moses, and yet they failed to recognize and failed to receive the very one Moses wrote of. So this morning, I just ask you this question. Can you see it today? Can you see that God's word points to Jesus Christ and his word speaks to the deepest needs of your life. And how have you responded to that? These religious leaders honored the Lord with their lips, but in their hearts they lived just like everyone else in the world. You see, Jesus mentions John. That's John the Baptist. Well, what did the Pharisees think of John the Baptist? Well, they didn't think much. They didn't think much because when, when, when Herod put... John's head on the, uh, the plat, what? Platter? Well, I wasn't actually going there with a the platter. That came later. I was trying to think of what he actually was on when he got sliced, but uh, I couldn't think of that word. But yeah, he got on the platter because his head came off, right? It's a pretty gruesome picture for a Sunday morning, but that's where we're at. So when that all went down... Where are the Pharisees at? You know, we never read that in the Bible, that the Pharisees went to the leadership of Rome or the leadership of the hierarchy there, even in Jerusalem in the Judea area, and said, John's a good guy. Leave him alone. Give him some grace. Give him some grant. You never see that. So they didn't approve of John the Baptist. Why? Because he's preaching the kingdom. He's preaching the kingdom. So these pious men... We're nothing more than lost men, condemned men. And so it's in this spiritual darkness, in this rebellion, that God's son speaks a word. He preaches the message of the kingdom. And Jesus, as he says here to these people, he says nothing about miracles. He doesn't say, since then, good works of the kingdom have been performed. There's no mention of lame being healed. There's no mention of the blind receiving sight. There's no mention of the dead being raised. Now, did all of those things happen? Yes. We've been walking through the Gospel of Luke, and we've seen those things happen. But when it comes to what Jesus is saying to these men, he emphasizes the Word of God, not the miracles of God. I think sometimes we would prefer God to do a just miraculous, unexplainable thing in our life, but what does he give us most of the time? His Word. His Word. Because if we have a miracle, we need another miracle. Another miracle. But if I have the word of God, I just believe, trust him. I can go through the valley of the shadow of death, and I can come out on the other side because I trust his word and what it says about the Lord. So the word speaks to the deepest needs of our heart, that of being made right with God. 
Going back to Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12, it says, For the word of God is living and it's active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the hearts. These Pharisees' outward piety was really strong. They would put all of us to shame today. All of us to shame. They looked apart. They seemed like men who knew and followed God, but they did not know, nor did they follow him. They were lovers of money. They were full of pride. Therefore, speaking to surface-level things would not help the Pharisees in the sight of God, their status with God. They did not need a five-step help talk to help them get a better life. They did not need some sort of behavioral modification module. That was not going to do them any good. You see, their problems were much deeper than that. They needed the word of God to speak to the deepest needs of the heart. And that is their utter rebellion against God. Today, just like these spiritual leaders, each of us possesses a heart that's in rebellion against God. Did you know that this morning? And we say that all the time. But do we recognize that? That our hearts are in utter rebellion against God. Now, you might argue and push back and say, Pastor, I'm not those jihadists that are are blowing Christians up. I'm a good guy. I even believe this thing. I said in church all the time. But if you've never come into relationship with Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us that you're totally depraved, totally condemned by your sin, totally separated from God, and every thought of your mind is against the Lord. It may not look as bad as someone else, but it's, it's equally as evil. So we're depraved. So the greatest need in our heart, whether we are super pious or not pious at all, whether we know the word of God or never opened it in our life, is to come into relationship with Jesus Christ. We can dress ourselves up, make ourselves look good on the outside. The fact remains, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. It's here. That God's word goes to work. It's here, going back to Hebrews 4, that God's word surgically cuts down through all of the duplicity in our life. All of the layers of things that we want to put on there and say, look at this, look at this. This proves that I'm good. This proves that I'm this part. This proves that God's going to accept me. The word of God surgically cuts through all of that down to the very deep recesses of the heart where actual life change takes place. It's the gospel that does that. And when that happens, we stand like Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, and we say, woe is me. You see, the layers of duplicity and all the things that we put over and the veneers, the facade that we, that we layer over our lives, it does confuse us, and it does mislead us, and we begin to think we're okay. But when the Word of God surgically does that, that, that cutting in our life, we begin to see what God sees all the time. That is our sin. That is our separation from him. That is the condemnation of the death that it brings in our life. And then, like Isaiah, we step back and we say, woe is me. I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. I'm a woman of an unclean heart. I need the redemption. I need the salvation. I need the cleansing of the blood of Jesus to wash this filth away. The deepest need in the Pharisees' hearts was to be redeemed by Jesus Christ. The message delivered by Moses and John and Jesus later to be delivered by the apostles all forcibly urge us to consider the gracious message of the kingdom. You see, God wants to transform our lives, which subsequently will transform our lifestyles. This brings us to a third thing. God's word sets boundaries for what is right and wrong. 
The deceitfulness of our hearts will lead us to think that we know better than God or that it's okay to improve on what he said. You ever, you ever haphazardly thought to yourself, you know what, I know it says this, but it, it'd make more sense if it said this. Or I know God wants me to do this thing in my Christian walk, but I'd like to just kind of tweak it a little bit and make it a little bit more uh, uh, palatable to, for, for me to, to uh, engage in and definitely for the people around me to engage in. And so we want to improve on God's word, and yet we can never do that. So it's here that we need to remind ourselves that nothing God has ever said has an expiration date. Isn't that good news? That God's word does not have an expiration date. Everything in our life has an expiration date. Even you have an expiration date, physically. You will be born, you will grow up, mature, then you will begin to be on the backside of life if you live a full life. But you'll come to a place and a point where you will expire and you'll be like some of these that we read in scripture where we bury you in the ground, right? Everything has an expiration date. You go to the store, you buy a gallon of milk. If you don't look at the expiration date, you open that jug at some point during its life cycle, and you'll know this has expired. It's now, it should now be butter or some sort of cottage cheese. It should not go in my cereal, right? You ever, you ever poured a, some milk in a bowl, and it's a little too far along, and you see those clobber things come out? That'll just bless your life in the morning. That'll just kind of ju just move you right into a great day. I remember I was, my first year ever go to... Uh, East Central Africa, and we were in Uganda, and uh, we were at the hotel, and our national brothers that were with us came, and it, we were on African time, so it's always two hours late, and they get there, and we're supposed to leave, but now they're expecting to eat breakfast, and so we sat down for second breakfast with them, and, uh, and so one of the brothers begins to pour milk into a, uh, to his cereal, and I'd already decided, I'm not touching milk here, and he's like, no, man, it's cold, it's cold, so I took it, and I tried it, and cold milk in that society is room temperature at best, and it was not to my liking, so it was a little bit what I'm talking about there. You got to set boundaries. God's word gives us the boundaries. Jesus says heaven and earth will pass away, but before any dot, any tittle of the law is changed, which means it's never going to change. Verse 17. We move to verse 18 and we get this very uh, random thought, this very random teaching in the midst of all of this about divorce. And so you may wonder how in the world does verse 18 fit into this discussion? Well, it does seem random, but nothing's random in the Word of God. God never just puts a thought in there that doesn't fit the context of everything else. And so as we look at this, we need to understand that God has, or Jesus has been talking about stewardship. He's been talking about money. He's been talking about the kingdom, and he's been talking about all these other things. And so in chapter 16, the, the theme is really about stewardship. And so here he's viewing marriage as a stewardship to guard. He's taught extensively about marriage all throughout his ministry. We've talked about some of it over the last several months. And so he points back in those teachings to the law. He points back to the prophets in the Old Testament. He calls Jewish people back to the holiness of marriage here in verse 18 as defined in the law. And so when we think about that, we understand historically that Jews, there was great debate about divorce. Should you divorce or should you not divorce? Can you divorce? Is it lawful? Is it legal? Is it right? Some were doing it, some were not. Some rabbis had come to the point where they had become so progressive, wanting to tweak and to make God's word better, 
that they had decided that a man can divorce his wife for basically anything. Right? You burn the dinner, you're out. You don't wear a certain type of clothing, you're out. You didn't put something on your face that you're supposed to that he liked, you're out. So they had no-fault divorces way back then. Have we changed much today? No, the reality is, is that from the time of the Garden of Eden, when Adam blamed Eve for eating that fruit, we have been blaming and holding marriage at a very low level of significance all the way up to today. That's why we have no-fault divorces. That's why you can basically make a contract that you can get out of really, really quick in America. And so Jesus speaks into this culture to remind them, just as he would speak to us today, how to rightly steward the possessions as well as their relationships. See, God's word alone sets the boundaries of what is right and what is wrong. Divorce is a prime example of this. So when we think of divorce, we need to think about what has God said about it. We need to live within those confines. As we think about every other category of life, what has God said, and we live within those confines, those boundaries that he has set. Pragmatism and preference should never be determining factors when it comes to stewarding the things of God. Well, pastor, I'll tell you what, uh, giving money in, in the offering or, you know, giving the tithe, that just doesn't make good business sense. Well, who said anything about good business sense? It makes good spiritual sense. It makes good obedience sense. So we do that. Well, pastor, I, I, I don't know about uh, how I should raise my kids. I, I don't think that I should push them in any certain direction. Well, the word of God says you're the, their parents and you're to steward them. And so you don't let little uh, Johnny run the asylum, right? So we want to understand the boundaries that God's word gives us for everything in life and live within those boundaries. It is the standard of righteousness as it reveals God. And we know the man is depraved, totally depraved, and as such cannot help but transgress those boundaries, right? That's what we do. That's what sin is. We step over the line. God has said, here's where the line is. Don't go over there. And what does Adam and Eve do in the garden? I want that fruit over there. And they step across the boundary. That's what sin is. That's what these Pharisees are doing. This is their lifestyle. And God's word teaches us how to have transformed lifestyles, but we first need a transformed life. This leads us to a fourth thing. God's word is necessary for salvation. Verse 19 through 31, we get into this story, this parable, if you will, of the rich man and Lazarus. It's not the same Lazarus who has Mary and Martha as his sisters. He's not the Lazarus, the brother of those sisters who, was, uh, who died and was resurrected from the dead. This is just a, a story, perhaps. This was a man that Jesus is telling about, and he uses the name Lazarus. So he tells the story, contrasting the lives of two different men. He tells us that one is a rich man. So the man's anonymous. We're not given a name. We're just told that he was a rich man. He lived like a king. He feasted. He's dressed in purple. He's dressed in the finest of linen. The poor man is named Lazarus. I think it's significant that he names him Lazarus because the word means, the name means God has helped. So it helps us to understand what the Lord's conveying here. This poor man named Lazarus is covered in oozing sores and he had nothing to eat. And literally every day, as the story goes, people would bring him and, and cast him alongside the gate outside the rich man's house. He had nothing to eat. He had no way to help himself, no way to provide himself. He was hoping and begging that some crumbs would come off the table from the rich man's 
estate and fall to him. He's in a situation very similar to that prodigal son we looked at in chapter 15. So the poor man dies and he's carried to Abraham's side, which is reference to heaven. There he enjoys the blessings of his heritage. The rich man also dies and he's buried. And, and Jesus tells us that he finds himself in Hades, a place of torment and judgment. There he's experiencing the horror of his heritage. The point of Jesus' story is not to teach us that wealth is bad or poverty is good. You see, money is amoral. It's not immoral, it's amoral. Money is only good or bad by what we use it for, how we Utilize it in our lives. That's what makes money bad or good. So it does not lead people to eternal destruction. Likewise, poverty is not going to secure a person's position in heaven. So this point is made in the second half of the story. The rich man begs Abraham to send Lazarus to his five brothers so that they could be warned of the dangers of Hades. Isn't that interesting? Now, I don't think we should read into this story Everything we want to know about the afterlife. I don't know in the afterlife that we will be able from heaven to look into Hades or vice versa. But the story has given us to convey a thought, to give us a teaching, an understanding of the need of the word of God. So this man who's in Hades, seeing this resurrected man, Lazarus, or this man who is now at Abraham's side, a picture of heaven, asks that he would be sent to his five brothers so that they could see a resurrected man and be warned and be drawn to the Lord to repent of their sin. And yet, Abraham, or the Lord, says that's not needed. In fact, they won't believe him. If they, if they don't believe Moses and the prophets, they're not going to believe the resurrection from a man who's been dead. They're just not going to go there. What does all of that teach us? It teaches us this. God's word is needed for salvation. It's necessary, right? We don't need to see a bunch of miracles. We don't need to see a bunch of spirit things happening in our lives. We need the word of God. That's what brings us to a place of salvation. It's the Bible that we learn of God. It's in the Bible that we learn of God. It's in the Bible that we learn of sin's condemnation. It's in the Bible that we learn about the redemption that comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no other way we learn of those things. As wonderful as creation itself is, you think about Paul's argument in Romans chapter 1, that in this, what we call natural revelation, we see that there is a God, but it never takes us to the fullest extent of knowing who this, is, who this God is and how we're to relate to this God. We need more than that. We need special revelation. We need Jesus, the living word, and we need this right here, the written word, that confirms and teaches us about this living word. We need that revelation so that we can know who God is, who we are, and how we have broken this relationship, but how he desires to bring it back together. You all tracking with me this morning? I can't tell about your facial expressions. Okay, we're good? We're out of time, but I'm coming to the conclusion. We're landing the plane right here. We're, we're going to get out early this morning, earlier than last week. <laughs> well, I'm going to do my part. I don't know about everything else. So Alexander Smith, think about him. Back to this um, opening story. Alexander Smith, the sailor that found the word of God, lived a debased and sinful life. He and his sailors were depraved. 
The Bible was a present among them. I just want you to wrestle and think with that, about that this morning. Here are these men who brought the word of God with them to a, 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 an island where they were colonizing this island. They were going in and they were trying to make it better, bringing fruit trees and fruit, fruit bearing trees and all of these things to make this better. But instead, what they brought is their depravity with them and it destroyed the island. And yet they had the word of God right there with them all the time. Sin destroys everything in a person's life. Smith came to the end of himself Sin had destroyed everything in his life. He, he found himself looking at the fact that all of the sailors that I came to this island with, all eight of them are gone. All the men who are here as native people, they're gone. I see the disease. I see the destruction taking place in the women and the children here. I experience it in my own body. And so he comes to the very end of himself, and it's there that he finds the word of God, and he begins to read it. He begins to believe it. He begins to appropriate it. And what happens? It changes him didn't change the outside. He, he didn't go and get fine clothes. He didn't do, go and, and, and build a temple and get all pious. He didn't do any of those things. He let the word of God seep down deep into the recesses of his heart, and it revealed who he was. It revealed his need, and he said yes to Jesus Christ. And then from there, Life has been birthed, life begins to grow, life begins to push out of him, and not just out of him, into others. As he took the word of God, and he taught it, and he, and he demonstrated it to those women and children that were living there on the island with him. So that when people finally showed up 20 years later, they didn't find the wicked culture that he had left on the other island, or late, earlier on that island. He finds, or they find, a people who are at peace. A people who are not struggling with many of the things that we struggle with in our culture today. People that have been transformed. The gospel is what does that. You know, we hear so much today about all of these tragedies, and we want to blame it on all sorts of things. Mental health this, mental health that. And, and we'll, we, what we do is we reach back and we say, oh, man, in 2020. Oh, man, in this and this. And I, Hey, get me. Believe me, 2020 and 2021 was nuts. I'm still a recovering COVID addict from that. Not because, we'll just stop there. <laughs> I, I said I was going to get you out early. But we reach back and we say, oh, no, no, we lament all these things. Could it be that the mental health in our nation is the, what it, is the way it is? It's because we have said no to God and his word. We, we said no. We say there's not just male and female. There's male, female, and whatever else you want to be. We say sexuality doesn't have to be confined to the marriage of man and woman. It can be between man and man, and woman and woman, and man and woman, and whoever else they want to bring into that. So, so we redefine all of these things, and we could go through the litany of other areas of our life, and, and then we step back and say, look how wonderful we are. Look how we've progressed. Look how our society is moving forward. And, and yet the Word of God would tell us, you're not moving forward. You're moving back. You're moving back into the pits of hell. And you think and you wonder, why are we in the state that we're in? It's because you've rejected the word of God. That is the very thing you need. And so it starts. I know we want to clap. And I'm glad you're clapping on that because you affirm it. But we want to say, well, let's juxtapose this. Let's push this out to the culture. The reason the culture is where it is is because the church no longer believes that stuff. You see, we think... 
in our sanctified Southern Baptist conservative fundamental Bible believing gospel holding type of, uh, of church and, and person that it's everyone else. No, the problem of the culture is because there's a problem within the church and the problem within the church is because there's a problem within me and you. We don't believe the word of God anymore. We just don't. We want to go to heaven. We want fire insurance. We want a place. We want, we want an address on the golden streets of heaven. We want that, but we don't want anything else. We don't believe the word of God like we should. It's just a fact. And so as we think about the debauchery of our culture, it's because there's debauchery in the church. Here are Pharisees who this morning could run circles around me every day and twice on Sunday when it comes to the Old Testament. They miss Jesus. Why? It's because they stopped believing the word of God. Well, they knew it. Well, believing it and obeying it, two different things. You only really believe it when you obey it. And so, church, I'm calling to us this morning to understand that God's word is what we need. It's the answer for every question in life. You say, oh, it didn't speak to all these gender identity things. It absolutely speaks to those things. It didn't speak to the hard questions of life. It absolutely speaks to the hard questions of life. Are we willing to believe it? Are we willing to take the criticism, the ridicule? And that's what's going to happen when we say, no, 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 no. This is what the word of God says. Here, here's what I told a person last week. I said, you know what? I don't care about any criticism I take from the constituents in my district about something. I'm not running for votes. I don't care if every person in the district that lives, every person that lives in District 4 and said, you must do this. If it transgresses my biblical conviction upon this word of God, I don't care. I'll vote with this every time, every single time. And that's where we've got to live our lives. That's where we got to live our souls. Not, not so dogmatically where we're just mean and hateful and, and, and unkind. No, lovingly standing on the truth of God. We live there personally. We live there in our families. We, we don't affirm things that are sinful and wrong. But we love them. Love them enough to show them this right here. Because this is the only thing they need. All right, I told you I was going to get you out of here earlier, but if I keep on, you'll never get out of here. This morning, I, I don't know where you're at, um, but God has spoken, and God's word's all you need. And his word tells us that what you need is a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so this morning, if you are in relationship with Jesus, you have much to be thankful for on this Thanksgiving holiday. You, you've been brought from death to life. You've been brought from the pits of hell to the golden streets of heaven. You have much to be thankful for. You've got a word that's been given to you that can teach you and mold you and shape you. You've been given the person of the Holy Spirit to lead you and guide you and direct you in your walk with Jesus. To give you the words to say to other people. We have much to be thankful for. And so this morning, my prayer for you as Christians is that you would you would abide in that. You would walk in that. That You would embrace that. And when we look at these hard questions that we're facing today, 
we would make sure that we're answering those questions biblically. Biblically, right? We're not doing anyone a favor. We're not even doing ourselves a favor by saying, uh, let, let's not press so much here, let's back up. No, that doesn't help anybody, right? It doesn't help anybody. This morning, some of you in this room, you're not in relationship with Jesus. You're just not. You're, you're in the same boat as these Pharisees here. You just might not, as look, you might not look as outwardly as bad, but you're in the same boat. What is that boat? It's a ship that's sailing to hell. It's a ship that's going down to death. It's a ship that's got you separated from God. It's, got a, it's a ship that may look really wonderful. It may be the party cruise, but I'm telling you, the cruise is going to a place you don't want to go to. It's porting in a, in, a, in a place, a destination you would never want to go to. And so I would beg you this morning, get off that ship. Come to Jesus and experience the life he wants to give you. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful that you've spoken a clear word. It's not something that we have to wonder, what did God say about this? No, it's clear. It's clear what sin is. It's clear about the consequences of sin. It's clear about the judgments of sin. It's clear about the, the effects of sin. It's also clear about what the gospel does in our life. What Jesus has won for us on the cross through his death, burial, and resurrection. It, it's very clear. And so we thank you for that this morning. And I thank you for those in this room who have said yes to Jesus. And my prayer is that, Lord, you'd help us to walk in that yes. I pray for others who have not yet said yes, but continue to walk at a guilty distance. I pray that this morning their ears have been opened. I pray this morning that their hearts are sensitive. I pray, Lord, this morning that they have a want to within them, that they want to say yes. They want to follow. They want to come into relationship with Jesus Christ. Fathers, you lead us into this time of response. I pray that we would truly respond. This time is yours. We pray in Jesus' name. We trust that you and your family have been encouraged and blessed today. If you have just made a decision to follow Jesus, or if you would like to pray with someone, or even if you want to know more about our church, please contact our church office or send us an email. We are looking forward to seeing you next week here in person or online. See you then.